We often joke and say it's feast or famine. I stole that from Dr. Cairns talking about guest preachers. Uh, there seemed to be a season usually around the Bible conference at the university where the special speakers were lining up and there were many. And then he said the famine came when they left and they were left to his preaching. Well, this is just about announcements, but we had a string of them this morning. Let me just say, I've actually put a few copies, printed copies, of the special announcements we made uh, this morning before the message on the back table for those that weren't here this morning and perhaps others that will join us in the weeks ahead. So do uh, grab one of those if you're in that category or just want one. We can print more, but uh, do take those things to heart, we trust. And also, again, I appreciate your prayers. Uh, Tomorrow's the first day of the new year for the seminary, so very much pray for the students. I think we'll have three on campus this first trimester. Two will be zooming in from Mexico, and then I think one of those, is that right? Will Reuben join us after the end of this calendar year, or is he going to be in Mexico this whole school year? Do you know that? Pablo? Don't ask me, I just work there. Um, but anyway, appreciate your prayers on that. We've actually had to prepare different documents and send letters for his employer and so forth. So uh, remember that in your prayers. I see our brother Joseph here this evening. Derek mentioned this morning, this, this week. I guess you, I don't know if ship out is a Navy thing or an Army thing, but uh, let's do pray for him. We will be praying for you, Joseph, very much. Lord's protection and help in this new endeavor in life. So pray for you, brother. And also, I knew there was one more. I failed to mention this morning another announcement being uh, next Lord's Day, I will be with you, Lord willing, in the evening for our communion service. But our brother Joel Pankratz has asked me to fill in for him in the morning next Lord's Day. So I'll be doing that once again on the other side of Burlington. Burlington's flanked by some Reformed churches now. Um, but I'll be preaching for him, Lord willing, in the morning and be back here in the evening. So I appreciate your prayers for that. Turning tonight to Psalm 78. Psalm 78, we're continuing and getting somewhat near the end of this sequence of psalms that are the Psalms of Asaph. This is a lengthy psalm. I want us to read it together. It's one of those psalms, perhaps the most... I guess, exemplary of the Psalms that is a recounting of certain high points or high and low points of Israel's history that are to be remembered by the Lord's people and, of course, have been inscripturated for us in the Lord's Word. It's a Psalm that, if you look at the second verse, is quoted and used by our Lord with regard to His own teaching in parables. And so here, the parable in some ways is a history, Uh, it's not fiction. And so let us read together and read with understanding the psalm itself before we come and consider something of it this evening. So Psalm 78, Psalm Miskil of Asaph. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord 
and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. For He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born. We should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments, and might not be as their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that set not their heart aright, and whose spirit was not steadfast with God. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in His law and forgot His works and His wonders that He had shown them. Marvelous things did He in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt and the field of Zoar. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through. And He made the waters to stand as in heap. In the daytime also He led them with a cloud and all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink as out of the great depths. He brought streams also out of the rock and caused waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against Him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. They tempted God in their heart by asking meat for their lust. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in this wilderness? Behold, He smote the rock. The waters gushed out and the streams overflowed. Can He give bread also? Can He provide flesh for His people? Therefore the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in His salvation. Though He had commanded the clouds from above and opened the doors of heaven and rained down manna upon them to eat, Gave them of the corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them meat to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heaven, and by His power He brought in the south wind. He rained flesh also upon them as dust, and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. He let it fall in the midst of their camp, round about their habitations. So they did eat, and were well filled, for He gave them their own desire. They were not estranged from their lust, but while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. For all this they sinned still and believed not for His wondrous works. Therefore their days did He consume in vanity and their years in trouble. When He slew them, when they sought Him, and they returned and inquired early after God, They remembered that God was their rock and the high God their Redeemer. Nevertheless, did they flatter Him with their mouth and they lied unto Him with their tongues. For their heart was not right with Him, neither were they steadfast in His covenant. But He, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity and destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned He His anger away and did not stir up all His wrath. For he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. How oft did they provoke him in the wilderness and grieve him in the desert? Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. 
They remembered not His hand, nor the day when He delivered them from the enemy, how He had wrought His signs in Egypt and His wonders in the field of Zoan, and had turned their rivers into blood and their floods that they could not drink. He sent diverse sorts of flies among them which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their increase under the caterpillar and their labor under the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and their flocks to hot thunderbolts. He cast upon them the fierceness of His anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. He made a way to His anger. He spared not their soul from death, but gave their life over to the pestilence and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength and the tabernacles of Ham, but made His own people to go forth like sheep guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them on safely so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. He brought them to the border of His sanctuary, even to His mountain, which His right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen also before them, divided them in inheritance by line, and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. Yet they tempted and provoked the Most High and kept not His testimonies but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow, for they provoked Him to anger with their high places, moved Him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, He was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that He forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which He placed among men, and delivered His strength into captivity and His glory into the enemy's hands. He gave His people over also unto the sword and was wroth with His inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given to marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awaked as one out of sleep and like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine. He smote His enemies in the hinder parts He put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, He refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion which He loved. And He built a sanctuary like high places, like the earth which He had established forever. He chose David also His servant and took him from the sheepfolds, from following the ewes great with young. He brought him to feed Jacob's people, or Jacob His people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. Linda well, reading, trust again the Lord will prosper, the public reading of his word. Do join with me, if you would, again in a word of prayer before we consider the psalm together. Heavenly Father, we tonight... Rejoice to sing together the praises of a God that's worthy to be praised. Of a God who's really there. And in this world that is filled with confusion, Lord, that is so filled with sin and the suppression of truth, Lord, we're staggered to consider that we read it so plainly in Your Word because of such suppression of truth, you give people over 
even to a reprobate mind. They cease to even be able to discern between what is right and what is wrong. Lord, at such a time as this we live in, and yet we read tonight of Israel, redeemed and called to inherit the land of Canaan, and yet in so many ways, as we see the backslidings and the sin that is chronicled in this psalm, they didn't see, they didn't believe, yet your mercies were great. And we see those windows of blessing. And we pray that tonight as we consider something of these words we've read, that you'll draw near and prosper us one and all. We pray it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. Well, you found me to be a prophet indeed. As I said, it was a lengthy psalm and we've read together the length of it. Obviously, this evening, we're not going to take every verse of this psalm, every chapter of the history that it records before us. I do want to give something of a survey of the the pieces, if you will, or the, the segments of the psalm. There's one particular text within the psalm that I think really crystallizes the, the message that's to be found for us within it. I have to really begin by sharing a little bit of a story. If you look at verse 68, or excuse me, verse 65, there's a text in the psalm that when I was, uh, well, a very young preacher, uh, when I was a licentiate and just barely here, uh, this church hasn't even been started yet, I was given the sober task of preaching in Greenville. And, well, that's still, Logan could nod his head, a sober task. I don't know if it's changed, but I know in the days when Dr. Cairns was there, the pulpit was mighty, it was blessed, and to fill that vacant pulpit was, well, pretty intimidating for one young or old. Morning message had come along. I was struggling in my preparations for what to look at in the evening. And I was smitten with the words of verse 65. Then the Lord awaked as one out of sleep. Doesn't the Bible say that he that keeps Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps? How do you explain a passage that talks about God waking up? Well, you look at the context in this section of the psalm. Maybe I'll jump ahead here in my little aside. But you see that telling of the story of Eli's wicked sons and Israel in unbelief, really in superstition, taking the Ark of the Covenant into battle against the Philistines, and God lets that Ark be taken. He lets Shiloh, which was the place where the tabernacle had been set up, the temple's not built yet. So that's the very center of the place where God's people are worshiping, and the Ark is there, the symbol of His presence, and God lets it be taken and lets Shiloh be sacked. It's this incident that Jeremiah uses as his text, really, in the temple sermon in Jeremiah 7. You people that say the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. 
Gentiles can come and take away the northern tribes. The Gentiles can come and take away everything that surrounds Jerusalem. But when we're inside of these walls and God's temple is sitting there, we're invincible. And Jeremiah says, oh yeah? What about Shiloh? The Philistines took the ark. God let it happen. It's these pieces of history that the psalmist brings before us. And of course, the answer to my dilemma, the Lord awaked out of sleep. I even put that as the title of my, I guess, third point in my sermon that night. Uh, I think it was the Savior's searching slumber. There were triple S's that day. Dealt one with the sinner's sinful slumber, was that it? You can pick the text, but sinners that are dead, they need to be awakened. And then in 1 Corinthians 15, there's a little sleep that's referred to the believer. Paul talks about the Corinthians and their denial of the resurrection or letting that heresy in their midst. And he says to them, awake to righteousness and sin not. Saints at times can have a shameful slumber. But how can God slumber? And they pondered this text and looked at the context. Well, the title for that point became The Savior's Searching Slumber. God's sleep, quotes, is only apparent. God will at times, and of course that's in many ways the history that this psalm highlights. He withdraw Himself when His people are in unbelief when they're in rebellion against Him and against His truth. He leaves them in so many ways to the consequences of their own sinfulness. But this psalm is a chronicling of history. And in a lot of ways, I think this psalm is like the book of Acts. You read through Acts and it's like, didn't you go to literary school, Paul? Or excuse me, Luke? There's no conclusion. You just kind of left us there. Paul's in jail in Rome. Well, this psalm, it brings us to the days of David, which were the zenith of Israel's history, but it it just leaves off. And it's for God's people to remember the highs and the lows of history and wait for yet another David to come. I want to look, as I said, just to survey something of the psalm. We're going to come back to the seventh verse for our final thoughts. But after those introductory challenges, and it's interesting even there when you see the challenge for the the children to be instructed and then the children's children to receive instruction and well, but then it turns around and says that they not be like their fathers. Wow, that's that's a task for fathers. Don't be like me. We know all the pieces of that and the gospel applications of that. But when you come to verse 9, it's where this recounting and the the cycle of the history and the lessons from it begins. And from verse 9, we'll not read all these sections again together, obviously, but the miracles that were wrought, the land of Zoan is depicted there. It's a, a name for where the children of Israel were in Egypt. The miracles that God wrought there were things that Israel came to forget. 
It's one of those times where you can read the Scriptures and you, you can come to at least some tangible appreciation of the doctrine of depravity. Because here, things were plainly set before their eyes. Evidences, undeniable evidences were given to them. And yet in so many of that generation, there's a heart of unbelief. We'll see the same as we come to Romans in the first chapter. Undeniable evidences. Truth shining from every direction. Yet truth suppressed. Here Israel forgets the miracles of God. From verse 17 and following, their murmurs are seen here. They sinned yet more against Him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. We recount the story of God providing water from the rock and providing quail from the skies, filling their camp with food. Can God provide a table in the wilderness? He made the universe. But here in the midst even of receiving that blessing, and you think about that phrase, man did eat angels' food. Yet they murmured against their God. You come to verse 32, another section here. And this is an interesting section because it brings out that there are times in which God's people put forth something that looked like and sounded like repentance. But it was meaningless. Look at some of this, if you will. For all this they sinned still and believed not for His wondrous works. Therefore their days did He consume in vanity their years in trouble. You follow down to verse 36. Nevertheless, they did flatter Him with their mouth. They lied unto Him with their tongues. For the heart was not right with Him neither were they steadfast in His covenant. How many times was it true of Israel? How many times has it been true in church history? How many times have we seen it in the lives of individuals or perhaps even lived it in our own lives? In which the evidence of our sin, our rebellion abounds. We get caught as it were. And we utter some words to God. We check some box with the church. And yet it's a meaningless repentance. They flatter Him with their mouth. They lie to Him with their tongues. But their heart's not right with Him. So much, I haven't said this very recently to my knowledge, but I've often said this little Romanist dwells in each of us. The religious flesh, it's ready to do some perfunctory deeds to try and assume that things are right between the soul and God. But it can be a meaningless repentance. You come to verse 40. You see the succeeding verses here. They provoked Him in the wilderness. There was an ingratitude for the exodus. And if you skip down to verse 54, the following section (coughs) brings us to an ingratitude for the promised land. 
And there's some interesting paradoxes, if you will, here. Again, I was impressed with Derek Kidner's commentary on the psalm. And he talked about these paradoxes. The paradox of the wilderness was they were discontented, and yet they were the recipients of miracles every day. They got up from their tents, they walked out, and they collected bread that they didn't labor for, that God miraculously sent for them. They were the recipients of miracles every day. And yet they were not contented. And then if you come to the next section as it speaks of their inheritance and their entering into the land, there's an ingratitude for the promised land. And you see that chronicling of the sins. And it comes down again to that highlight we spoke of with the Philistines capturing the ark of God. And again, what a picture of the religious flesh. Well, we're God's people. We've got the ark. We've got the tabernacle. We've got the presence of God. We've got the books of Moses. We have the Bible. But they're filled with sin. Sons of Eli were wicked men. They were so ungodly that for them, men abhorred the offering of the Lord. I know there's different pieces of understanding that, but I remember being smitten with that phrase back in the history books. And you see that in Samuel. Because of those wicked priests, men abhorred the offering of the Lord. I remember saying, Lord, don't ever let me turn into a preacher that people that would come to know me would think less of you. Think less of your people and your church because of what they see in me. What a fearful thing. Kidner pointed out the paradox here because you see this unfolding of idolatry. In the wilderness, they're, they're ungrateful. They're discontented. Though they're the recipients of miraculous provision every day. It boggles the mind. Then you come to Israel in these verses in the promised land. What did God use Israel to do? It's one of those hard things in the Old Testament when we see the, the armies of Israel given to go forth and to defeat and exterminate the Canaanites. We'll not turn this into apologetics tonight. But God had long, been long-suffering with the land of Canaan. He told Abraham when He gave him promise that his seed would be sojourners in the land of Egypt for 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. He's going to be long-suffering with them for four more centuries because of their apostasy, turning from truth they had had. Even when Abraham came and was called, remember he built that altar in the midst of the land as soon as he arrived. He's reminding the Canaanites of truth they've abandoned. God used Israel to bring judgment upon the idolatrous Canaanites. And the paradox is Israel enters the land and what do they do? They enter into idolatry themselves. But the turning point of the psalm, as 
we see the Lord awaking out of sleep. Then the Lord awaked as one out of sleep. Really the preceding verses, the the priest falling by the sword, the widows making no lamentation. Well, that's a reference to where we even get our understanding of Ichabod. The glories departed. And what's left of Israel? The Philistines have the ark. Well, lo and behold, God, without the help of Israel, was able to get the ark back. I love a phrase. I remember hearing Dr. Jones Jr. once in one of the Sunday morning messages, which were, well, for us old people that remember such days, they were of a different flavor than the chapel messages, to be sure. He waxed poetic often there, and he took that phrase from Samuel as the Philistines placed the ark on that new cart and hooked it to the oxen. And the Philistines had said, well, if, if the oxen go this way or that way, uh, we'll know that just chance happened to us. But if they head back toward Israel, well, we'll know Israel's God had something to do with this. So they load up the oxen in the ark and they slap them and they head straight down the road back to Israel, to Beth Shemesh, lowing as they went. God didn't need Israel to get the ark back. And if you read this portion of God awaking as one out of sleep, you think of that ultimately low point for Israel with the ark taken. It's within 50 years that David is on the throne. And the zenith of Israel's history is experienced. What a testimony to God's grace, to His long-suffering with His people. And so the psalm in many ways is, well, it's depressing because you can look at church history. You can even look at the New Testament and in the brief record of the decades, the few decades we have there from Pentecost and revival to the warnings to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Well, it kind of starts to look a little bit like Israel's history. But a long-suffering God will bring it to a glorious conclusion. But we live in the midst of days of waiting. We need, with this psalm and with the letters to the churches in Revelation, to be warned, to be reminded, to be called constantly back to the covenant of grace. And I want you to turn back to verse 7, if you would, for what in many ways is the message in the heart of the psalm. The three phrases that make up this verse. The challenge given to the children to be mindful of what they're taught and not to repeat the sins of those that have gone before. These three phrases, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. 
Those are the lessons. Those things are to be the outcome of being reminded of this checkered history. That they might set their hope in God. Personal trust. Faith. What marked the generation that came out of Egypt, what marked these various generations that stumbled into sin and apostasy was unbelief. Remarkable. Staggering. Unbelief. Even at times, contrary to solid evidences. Let us not be guilty of unbelief. Let us set our hope in God. And then the second phrase, not forget the works of God. Well, Israel can remember the Exodus, remember the plagues, remember the Passover lamb, remember the sprinkled blood. We're given, not just, though that's not the best way to say it, not only the types. We're given the fulfillment. Let us set our trust and not forget, rather, the works of God. We're bombarded with news and distressing things in the world and in the church. It's so easy to get our eyes off the main thing. Well, it's getting eyes off the main thing that causes these other problems. And so let us not forget the works of God. Let us be mindful of the outworking of redemption. Let us be always jealous of the person and work of Jesus. And then the last phrase, but keep His commandments. There's to be personal trust, faith, There is to be an informed and humble thinking as we don't forget His works, as we engage in gospel thinking, gospel remembering what these Old Testament saints are asked to do. Gospel remembering. Gospel thinking. Don't forget the works of God. And then... Keep His commandments. An obedient will. I hope that in our studies of Romans, we can come to deeper understanding and application of gospel truth. To me, it's it's saddening to see in the history of the church that there's so often this vacillating back and forth between opposing errors. And so often, at least in the masses, an inability to to find and hold on to the Gospel. The Gospel speaks of, yes, us being recipients. Yes, it being all of grace 
Every bit of Romans 5. We contribute nothing to this. Jesus has done it all. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? The grace may abound. God forbid. Israel here, after being charged with gospel thinking, gospel remembering, are charged to have an obedient will, to keep His commandments. Or as the New Testament phrases it, His commandments are not grievous. We view those commandments as grievous. Something of a wrong heart there. As I said, this is a lengthy psalm. We've just scratched the surface in trying to touch its themes. But I pray the Lord will help us in our overviews, not only of Israel's history, but of all of history, to learn from history. Things that were written before are written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. So may God prosper His Word and write this very psalm on our hearts tonight. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, we wonder and think of Israel reading and singing this psalm. What a rebuke and simultaneously what an encouragement it must have been. Let something of that belong to us as well. Make us a people that have faith. Make us a people that don't forget the works of God. And make us a people that obey Your commandments. We ask these things in Jesus' worthy name. Amen.